Welcome to the ACC Podcast. We're honored that you took some time out of your day to listen to one of our weekly messages. We hope that these messages help you grow closer in your relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're thinking about attending ACC, we are currently holding one service at 25% capacity on Sundays. You can sign up through our website, anacortischristian.church. That's A-N-A-C-O-R-T-E-S Christian.church. You can also visit our website if you have any questions about ACC, like where we are located, our core beliefs, or if you'd like to get in contact with us. We would love to hear from you. So whether you're sitting, driving, or exercising, thanks for tuning in. Christmas. Right? What's it all about? What's it all about? I've been watching Christmas shows on TV lately, and there's a, there's a lot of things Christmas is about that I didn't fully understand. It's about the magic and the joy of family and lights, snow. Uh, okay, someone's got a hand raised. What's Christmas about? Yes. Now, you say that, but I don't know about you, but I love getting gifts, right? I love getting gifts at Christmas, don't you? If I hold this package up in front of you, it evokes something inside, doesn't it? There's like, a, there's an excitement there. You want to know what's in this box, don't you? And if I were to say, you know what, I'm going to give this to somebody here. I want to give you a gift, and you can come up and unwrap this and take it home with you. Would you, would you accept that? Would you do that? Yeah? Probably. You'd want to do that, right? Too bad. It's mine. <laughs> it's mine. Because it's better to receive than to give. No? I love receiving gifts. Now, there's a catch, right? You're like, okay, where, where's he going with this? Or did 2020 finally get to Mike? He's, he's lost it, right? Isn't there a scripture that says it's better to give than to receive? Yes, there is. And for, the information, for your information, this is an empty package that I borrowed from the Christmas tree in the foyer. So, sorry, guys, there's nothing special. What a letdown. But when I say it's better to receive than to give, there is one sense in which that is actually true. Okay? Christmas is all about the gift, the ultimate gift, right? Some give money. Some give diamonds. Most of us give plastic. But Jesus... Jesus ransomed you from eternal death by giving you his very life. He held nothing back. So to become an image-bearing kingdom of God person who represents the Father who gives, we have to have really received that gift first, right? God is a giver. 
In fact, this is the very nature of God from day one. Did you know that the first command God ever gave to mankind was receive? Receive, not give, receive. He'd made all the things in creation and put man in his garden and all the trees that were good for fruit. And he said, of all these trees, you are to not just eat, but eat, eat in Hebrew. In feasting, you shall feast, is how it's kind of directly translated. Feast. I'm giving you a gift. That's how he starts. I'm giving you this gift. But, of course, he says, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this one tree you shall not eat, because if you do, you will surely die. Now, God isn't trying to withhold from us, but he's giving us a choice to trust. Is he actually the good giver? Do I trust him, or will I take matters into my own hands and trust myself instead? Will I trust him as the ultimate giver, or will I give in to the temptation to trust what looks desirable, what I think I want, and take matters into my own hands? And when we do that, that's when things fall apart. Or that's when creation spirals out of control and people become selfish and they're only doing evil all the time. And so there's a flood and then God reboots the whole thing. But again, it escalates into a, a tower built on the uh, ethic of making a name for ourselves, right? And so what does God do? How does he respond this time? He gives more, right? He calls one man, and he calls, his name is Abraham, and he, he's this no-name guy, a nomad from Ur of the Chaldeans. And he says to him, I want you to leave everything, your land, your family, your home, all of it, and go to a place that I'm going to show you because I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to pour out blessing on you. I'm going to make your name great and you're going to be a blessing and you are going to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. That, that's the plan. That's God's nature. He's an abundant giver. We, um, we, we preach a, a series called Teach Us Abundance. And just like I referenced our series Teach Us to Pray last week, um, you can go back online and look at that. It was only two messages long. But in that message, we talked about how the Bible invites us into a worldview, a way of seeing the world as a, as a world that is full of God's abundantly generous gifts. Okay? Everything that is around us that is good is lavished upon us by a giving God. Yet at the same time, we're all aware very much aware of the fact that we don't always experience life as abundance. We don't experience everything as a gift all the time. There's scarcity. Why? Well, the case that is made is that our scarcity problem is not a supply issue, and statistics would back that up. There's way more than enough food in this world to feed the billions of people who are in it. Our problem is not a supply issue. Our problem is a human issue. It's a sin issue. Okay? God is a God of abundance. Now, I want to read as review Matthew 5, 43 through 48. And this is what Mark preached on a few weeks ago. And this is the previous chapter to what we're preaching on in the Sermon on the Mount right now. So chapter 5, 43 says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. What's a child? A child is like a, a replica, a copy, a resemblance of his, her parents, right? It's another way of saying that you are to be like what God is like. Children of the Father who, what does he do? He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He just pours out. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore. What does perfect mean? In this translation, it means complete, whole, lacking nothing. Okay? Be complete in how you treat others and give the way your father is whole and complete in the way he treats the world and gives. Right? Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, complete. Know God as the giver. Receive him and his blessings. Only then, only then do we experience the liberation and the freedom and the ability to truly become givers, those who give. So we're looking at Matthew 6 right now, and this is our mess. We're calling it the outward life. Okay, we've talked about there's, there's three disciplines Jesus is going after here, prayer, fasting, and giving to the needy. In this case. And this is the first one that he talks about. We talked about the second one first last week. That was prayer. The, in, the upward life. So we're talking about the outward life. Let me go ahead and read Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And there's a motivation, right? If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Sorry, got that backwards. Left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Let's pray. God, I just pray that everyone here would be struck by the beauty of a giving God, and that that would change us, that our trust in you would open us up to be generous in our resources and our ability to share your abundance and your life with others around us. I pray um, for just... Clarity of thought, peace of mind as we deliver these words and that they would truly be your word to us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so again in this chapter, Jesus is contrasting two kinds of religious people, right? Two kinds of doing righteousness is how he calls it, is what he calls it. And, and what it really comes down to is you can have people who do all the right things by the book for the wrong reasons, and God is looking deeper than just our actions. He's looking at the heart. What are the motives? And in this case, we heard the motive twice. Be careful that your motive isn't just to be seen by others, right? 
And so he's pointing to people who uh, apparently are blowing their little trumpets as they give to people in the synagogues on the street corners. I kind of have that picture of, uh, I don't know, like a Monty Python video or something of like this little, you know, people marching along and some little proud person is coming along very pompous and full of themselves. But is it really that simple? Because uh, that's easy. That's, that's kind of like, oh, I don't do that. You know, I'm good. Um, is it that simple or is there a deeper motive here behind the motive that we need to sort of met out to understand what Jesus is, is really getting at? Because, I mean, I read some commentaries and they're saying like, you know, there's no evidence that anyone ever blew trumpets when someone was giving. So Jesus is probably just using hyperbole. Hyperbole is like to, to use an extreme picture like blowing trumpets as a way of saying, hey, don't make it about yourself. You know, don't, just don't make it all about you. Now, that's true, okay? That, if that's true. That's what he says. Like, do it in secret, not to be seen by others. But I think there's more going on here than meets the eye. You know, for one, um, back then they actually blew trumpets for a lot of things. It's not out of the realm of possibility that they might have blown trumpets for people when they're giving in this way. Uh, they blew trumpets for calls to prayer, calls to assemble. So you can imagine kind of a trumpet call as a signal to the needy to come and receive alms. Secondly, we don't want to get the impression that the people that Jesus is talking to didn't actually care about the needy or care about giving. That was huge. Okay? Charitable giving is a central part of the Jewish identity as a people. In fact, it really, I mean, there's so many Old Testament passages about caring for the poor and the needy. So, I mean, as legalistic as these Pharisees were, as these, you know, hypocrites were, is the issue really that they weren't concerned for the poor? Now, maybe it was. In some senses, Jesus seems to expose that at the heart, that's actually going on. They're really all about themselves and, and they're not that concerned with the needs of the poor. But if you were a Jewish person hearing Jesus say this, what would, what would a Jewish person say? Like they would probably respond and say like, hey, that's our thing. In fact, Craig Keener says that the, you know, the, the Greeks and Romans were set apart in this way because they did not support personal charity. Wealthy contributions to public projects or to poorer clients were meant to secure the giver's popularity. In contrast, charity was central to Jewish piety, and some writers even said that it saved a person. I don't know if you remember, um, maybe a couple years now, maybe a year, I don't know. I, I, as an illustration, I read a letter from a Roman senator named Pliny the Younger, and it was all about his encounter with um, a host at a banquet. And back then, you know, the Romans and the Greeks were all about their status in society, their place and making your way up. And so um, you see the, the church kind of acting this way when they're giving preference to certain seats at the table at the Lord's Supper in the First Corinthians and so on. And so this is what they would do in that culture. They had your places of honor. And then down at the end, you had like the, the slaves and the freedmen. They called them lower class people. And so Pliny is talking about how um, this, this host was making this big show out of um, how 
well he was treating the people at the places of honor and how poorly he was, you know, the rations that he was giving, the, 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 the watered-down cheap wine that he was giving to the freedmen and the slaves over here. And, and Pliny is just like, shame on him. This is, you know, it's not kosher. And, and not kosher, that's a funny word. Um, and then the, um, so the person he's talking to says like, well, what do you do? And he says, well, when I have a feast, I make sure everyone gets the same fare. So it looks like I'm really generous. And, and this is how he kind of makes his own way up. And, and he's like, wow, that must really put you out to some great extent. And he's like, not at all. I just make sure everyone has the cheap stuff, you know. So, so this is like, this is a document that we have. And it's revealing like generosity can look on the face like something, but there's an ulterior motive. For people like Pliny, it was merely to serve the exaltation and, the, and further the pursuit of, um, you know, building up his own status and elevating his own position, okay? So you could see, theoretically, this idea of the Jews getting the approval of the people by saying, like, we aren't like that, we value the poor. We value charity. We're going to blow our trumpet so that you will come and, and give yourself to this kingdom, not that kingdom, right? Theoretically, you don't see that in Scripture. That's kind of one theory that's a possibility there, okay? But the Jews were very protective of their national identity. They didn't like the fact that the Romans were there. Um, so it kind of makes sense. Third, there are clear examples in Scripture where it is perfectly appropriate to give publicly and not in secret. Chapter 5, he said, Let your light shine before others so that they'll see your good works and give glory to God. Or in Luke 21, Jesus witnesses a poor widow giving and uses her as a public illustration about giving self-sacrificially. Or in the book of Acts, the church are all giving and selling everything freely, and they're keeping account of that. And that's, you know, they, they call Ananias and Sapphira to account on that. You know, so, so there's something more going on here. And I believe that the motivation that Jesus is criticizing is, is deeper than simply making a show of your giving in order to be seen by others. That is the motivation. But the question is, what did they want people to see? What were they drawing them to? Because it's probably easier for us to say, most people anyway, well, I certainly have never sounded a trumpet or made a show of my giving. Now, you might know a few people who've done that. You know, it's, it's kind of like uncool in this culture anyway, right? Um, but, you know, in other ways... You can get your name, you could, it's too late now, get your name on a paving stone at Storvik Park if you gave, contributed generously to that project. Or there's foundations all over the place and they have published the names of their donors and they honor them in, in big ways, right? And so, so we do this. We kind of blow our trumpets today to get honor. But the key to understanding the question is examining the method Okay, what's underneath the motivation here to be seen by others? Let's look back to the method announcing their giving with trumpets in the synagogues. What does sounding a trumpet actually signify in the Bible? So that's where I went with this week, actually uh, through the help of a friend. Um, and so we went and we looked up all the instances of where trumpets are mentioned in the Bible. And so I'm going to give you the, the short version here. 
Because when Jesus says, don't announce your giving with trumpets, is he only saying, don't be loud and draw attention to yourselves, or is there a deeper connotation that we're supposed to pick up on? So first, the first instance of the word trumpet occurs in Exodus 19 when God comes down on Mount Sinai. There is a sound of a loud, mighty trumpet blast and the whole mountain shakes and there's smoke and it's terrifying and it is the alert that God has shown up. It's his presence. And the same thing is, it is said over and over again is going to happen again when God shows up at the end of the age at the sound of a trumpet. The Messiah will come again and there will be judgment and the dead will be raised and so on. So the trumpet announces the presence and the authority of God. The trumpet announces the presence and the authority of God. And this became a part of many things that people would do. Some of them are outlined in Numbers chapter 10. The trumpet was to call the people to assemble Okay, blowing the trumpet, calling the people to assemble. Not just because it's trumpet sounded, but because this trumpet represents um, God calling the people to assemble, basically. The authority of God and his people acting through his priests are calling the people to assemble. And also to set out when they were to pick up camp and move. It's blowing when people would go into battle. Okay, as, and it says that the, the sounding of the trumpet is to be a memorial or a sign of remembrance, a memorial that you would remember something, right? When you hear the trumpet, what are you supposed to remember? You remember that God is with you. His presence is going with you. In, in this case, into battle. Think Joshua, the battle of Jericho. The Lord will fight for you. Be strong and courageous. And then they sound the trumpets every day, right? And then... <clears throat> And, and, th and that's, a, you know, that's just something I just thought of on the spot is like, I always thought the trumpets being sounded every day were a way of just really freaking out their enemies. It probably was part of that. But if the trumpet is a memorial of God's presence with his people, then I wonder if those trumpet blasts were for a whole bunch of really timid Israelites who didn't know what the plan was here as they're about to take this city who's got thick walls, you know. Um, maybe it's both. I don't know. Just kind of came to me. But it's the, it's the reminder, the memorial, God will fight for you. Think Gideon, you know, the story of Gideon and the trumpets and the, the lights, the fire and stuff on the hillsides. Right, the trumpets were also to commemorate the various feasts and festivals and some of the offerings that the people were to give to God as a sign that God is with his people. All right. Um, in particular, they were to blast a trumpet at the beginning of the year of Jubilee. And that's significant. I don't have a lot of time to go into that one, but this is the year that happened every 50 years when all debts were uh, released or canceled. People were returned to their property. All servants were released from their service. And, uh, you know, this whole cycle would start over and the whole ground was to be left fallow. And in the passage that talks about Jubilee, there's a lot that is said about the poor. Deuteronomy 15 um, you know, it's interesting. It, it says, there's no reason for there to be poor among you because God will richly provide for you. And then later on, he says, the poor are always going to be among you. So be open-handed. Be open-handed to the poor. Notably, when Jesus announces his ministry, he does it in a synagogue by reading the scroll of Isaiah, chapter 61, I think, or 64. Anyway, and he says, 
The Lord has anointed me to what? Preach good news to the poor and to proclaim the year of Jubilee. Right? So the ultimate Jubilee, the ultimate release from debt, the ultimate freedom for the poor, for the captive, sight to the blind, freedom for the poor is coming through Jesus. And so all these connotations kind of exist within a trumpet blast. I don't know if this is what they were doing necessarily, but this is all in the backdrop, okay? Isaiah talks about how the, the trumpet blast would signify the return from captivity and exile. In that day, the Lord will thresh from the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt, and you, Israel, will be gathered up one by one. And in that day, a great trumpet will sound. Those who are perishing in Assyria and those who are exiled in Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. And many Jews under Roman occupation in Jesus' time considered themselves to still be in exile. So if someone blows a trumpet, what are they saying? They're like, we are your liberation, or we represent the authority that is going to liberate you. Come and be liberated. Also, Jesus shows up. Oh, I already told you that. Never mind. Can get my notes straight here? So as we start putting these pictures together, I think we begin to get a sense of what's happening here. There's a clash of kingdoms happening. There's the earthly Israel, and there's the Messiah announcing a new kingdom of God, a new Israel. It seems like what Jesus is getting at all along is along the lines of saying, be careful that when you give, you are not setting yourself up or your nation or your religious identity as the source. Don't make yourself the source. And finally, we see in 1 Corinthians, in a flash in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, uh, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. Same with 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then Revelation 11.15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. This is actual, after six uh, trumpets of God's judgment on the world. The seventh trumpet is Sabbath rest. And there will be loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. You put this all together, there's this sense of like an announcing that the source that's going to give you life, the, the nation that's the true nation, the, um, you know, the authority that comes, and, you know, with God's presence himself is here and is giving to you, giving you hope somehow, right? It's a memorial of God's presence, first on Mount Sinai, then announcing the resurrection of the dead at the end. It's the call to assemble. And what happens when you assemble people to give them gifts? Right? You create dependence. Okay? The givers are becoming the benefactors. A benefactor. Someone who kind of has a, a control over someone, a group of people like a parent because they're their source. They're their givers. 
Okay? Luke 22, 24 through 27, a dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them was, to be was going to be considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles, the nations, lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them, the nations, are themselves, they call themselves benefactors. Okay? But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it, the not, is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus doesn't come offering generosity in order to assemble a kingdom that can be bought with material goods so that he might rule over them as a benefactor. Okay? Recall the feeding of the 5,000, right? Afterwards, these huge crowds of people are following Jesus. What does he say to them? He says, you're just here because of the loaves and the fishes, aren't you? You know? You need to think bigger than that. You need to think deeper than that. Philippians 2 says that Jesus didn't count equality with God something to be exploited, but he emptied himself completely, right? Taking the form of a servant, even unto death. Jesus gives ultimately, fully, and only for the sake of the ones he's giving to. Not to become a benefactor. Not to uh, demand or rule over in that way in return. There's an interesting passage in... Um, one of the apocryphal books, and I don't, I haven't read it, the book. I don't know, you know, why the Protestant church decided not to canonize it or whatever, but it would have been familiar to Jesus' hearers because, it, and it talks about prayer, fasting, and the giving of alms. It's Tobit, chapter 12, and he says, Prayer with fasting is good, but better than both is almsgiving with righteousness. Notice the three things are there, as in Matthew 6. A little with righteousness is better than wealth with wrongdoing. It is better to give alms than to lay up gold. For almsgiving, giving to the poor, saves from death and purges away every evil. Those who give alms will enjoy a full life, but those who commit sin and do wrong are their own worst enemies. So the Pharisees and the hypocrites here are falsely announcing themselves as God's authority, God's kingdom. They're claiming to be his representatives, acting on his authority, assembling people unto themselves and through their giving, becoming the people's source for life. Jesus says, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father, right? They're offering life, restoration, jubilee, the sounding of trumpets. Now, whether that actually happened or it was their motive, that's what Jesus is exposing here. And he calls them hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? Hypocrite comes from the word hoopa, which means under, and kretos or something like that. And I can't remember. I think it has to do with a mask or a covering, under a covering. And it was actually in Greco-Roman culture was a theater term. It's someone who's performing under a mask. And so the idea is that you're representing one thing, but actually underneath you are something else. And so you have these people 
who are masquerading as God's kingdom while functioning as the earthly kingdoms. They might actually think they're representing God's kingdom, but they're not. Tim Mackey put it well in the, the, the show notes on a podcast in the Bible Project. He said, the generosity that Jesus dispenses exposes the heart of humanity, which is bent toward selfishness. Even in our generosity, there tends to be a selfish bent. Okay? He says, being generous in the way that Jesus is generous creates a different kind of security than economic security. It's a security based on a community that truly loves each other. Sharing freely with one another. The trumpet-blowing hypocrites were aligning their own ability to provide economic earthly security with the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is exposing is that true eternal security comes from something much deeper. It comes not from economic nor military conquest, but from knowing a deep, sacrificial, fatherly love that manifests itself outward through his children unto one another. In Luke chapter 12, 29, and Matthew has a version of this that we'll get into in a few weeks, but he says, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink, and do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has, was, has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so what's the real treasure? What's our treasure? What's our reward? And Jesus says that for those who announce their giving with trumpets, they have received their reward, their treasure, in full. And he says, but... For those who don't even let their left hand know what their right hand is doing, your Father, who knows what is done in secret, will reward you. And what's interesting is that word for reward is different than the word for reward two verses earlier. When he says they've received their reward in full, the word there, misthos, is the word for a wage that's earned. Okay, you've received your payment that you've been looking for. The word for reward in verse 4, when the, the father who sees what you do in secret will reward you, apodidomai, is a word that carries the sense of restoring, okay, of recompense, of filling. Okay? It's like the story of a father who owns the resources and he leaves them in my charge. When someone comes along requesting money, well, it's not my money, so I don't know what to do. You know, it's the Father's money. I, I don't know if I should give you money or whatever or, or goods or resources, right? The Father is saying, be free with my resources and I will repay. I will restore you. I will take care of you. Okay? 
Luke 6.38, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So, here's a little illustration. This is me. I have some resources. I can use them. I can give some of them, right? And obviously someone over here doesn't have those resources, okay? 2 Corinthians 9, 6-15, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Yeah. Oh, okay, you know, just maybe a little bit here. I don't want to spill. <laughs> Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God huh, is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of, need, of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Not too complicated, right? Let's keep going. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Running out of space here. It's good. <clears throat> and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to me. That's not what it says, right? The benefactor, no. The point all along is that the praise and thanks be directed where it belongs, to God, right? He's the giver. This service that you perform is not, uh, is, is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in the many expressions of thanks to God, that's the point. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel, the good news of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you. There's like a little bit of this going on too. Because of the surpassing grace, and the Greek word for grace is also the word gift that God has given you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift 
Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ, his indescribable gift. It's better to receive that gift than just to try to give without having received because I'm pretty limited here, and I might just do it for me, give thanks to me, right? That's the motivation. But our giving, when it is out of the outflow of the indescribable gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that changes our hearts. That creates a new world full of the generosity that God wants to share. Giving is good. In most circumstances, sometimes it actually hurts. It's not always good. In general, it's good. And the church should champion and, and step alongside charitable organizations and foundations. Those are wonderful things. But the giving that comes with the blowing of trumpets can only go so far. It assembles people as dependents and creates power systems and benefactors. It often masquerades as God's presence and authority while ultimately serving to give thanks only to the giver instead of to God. For monetary gifts claiming to give life from death, but the truth is this cup can only ever be so full. It can't truly give life from death. By contrast, I want to read from Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. And what happens when they receive the gift? Something remarkable happens in that community. Verse 43, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Having received the gift of a limitless Father, seeing it validated through signs and wonders, what do I have to fear? He will supply my every need. So that takes a serious amount of trust, doesn't it? That takes stepping out in some faith. That takes discernment, too, how to give. We haven't even touched that subject. When is it healthy? When is it right to give? And I know that that's a tricky question, but oftentimes I find that that question just creates the reason for me not to give. And so I'll let you wrestle with it because I don't have all the answers today. But having received the gift of a limitless father, suddenly everyone was abnormally free with their resources. And the key is, have you received the gift? What's the gift? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave 
his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? He is good. He's a giver. He's the gift that all our gifts commemorate at Christmas. It's better to receive that gift because it transforms us into people who partner with him to save the world through him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table now, these emblems representing the gift that you gave, your body and blood given for us, you spared no expense. You poured yourself utterly out for the purpose not of becoming a benefactor, but utterly to serve and to save, to rescue, to give. So give us that heart and give us your Holy Spirit, the gift, so that we can discern how and when and, and, and have the ability to trust that when we pour out generously, you supply for us and that we can share this gift. That's what Christmas is all about. We want to thank you again for joining us today and let you know that we love you and Jesus loves you. And you always have a place here at ACC. If you made a decision for Christ today or you just want to talk with someone, please don't hesitate to reach out. We have a really easy contact form you can fill out on our website or you can call us at 360-293-3729. We would love to talk with you. Go in peace and have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon.